So for the last few weeks, we've been in the book of Ephesians. Uh, We're looking at a letter that Paul wrote to a literal group of people. Paul did not write this letter, we said, from uh, a motel with an editor sitting with him. Uh, He wrote this letter in the midst of great tribulation. He wrote this letter from prison. He wrote it to a group of people who Jesus said in the book of Revelation when he wrote a letter to them, you have endured great tribulation and persecution. These are a group of people who have gone through a lot. And as we've looked at this letter, isn't it neat that God has equipped us for this very time? That we've already looked at and seen how, in fact, last week I said, if there's anything we get from Ephesians 1 and 2, I want you to understand that God is never in heaven going, what do we do next? And yet, as we see idols in our culture fall, the idol of experts, right now you can watch four different channels and you're going to get four different opinions. For me, in my own heart, the idol of planning It drives me insane when somebody calls and says, what are we going to do about this or what are we going to do about that? And I have to say, yeah, I don't know. I know it's all going to change. The idol of I, I am determining my own future. Well, maybe not. As we see that, it's easy for us to forget that God is still in control. We have been, God has prepared us and equipped us for the last three weeks. We've been seeing over and over and over God's word say, I am God. Last week, I was kind of groping for examples to use. And so I used cancer. I said, you know, when, when you're in the hospital and or in the doctor's office and you've had some test run and that, that doctor walks in and you can tell by the expression on his face, it's not going to be good. I want you to remember that God is God. Cancer is not God. When you get that phone call at 3 o'clock in the morning and tragedy has hit, God is still God. We've seen that in His Word. God has prepared us and equipped us, and that excites me. As the world runs around and says, Ah, all is lost, we can say, Oh no, this world has given me nothing that's going to last eternity and it can't take anything away. And so we see in God's Word, as Paul wrote here in Ephesians chapter 1, that everything, it says, that He has predestined us according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will. All things. Everything that's happening in this world is happening because of His purpose, His will. From the furthest planet orbiting a star in a galaxy that we can't even see with a telescope to a leaf that falls on a tree in the woods, God is the one who ordains how that's going to happen. Now, we've already talked about it, but I want to recover it again. What does that not mean? Does it mean that God is the author of sin? Does it mean that God tempts us? Book of James makes that really clear. Doesn't mean that God's made people robots and God, we're not, we, we don't know what we're doing and, and we're just puppets on a string. Doesn't mean that this creation isn't broken. But what it does mean is at the end of human history, on that day, as we stand around the throne of God and we look back across human history, 
we'll see that God has orchestrated everything that will happen and everything that has happened in such a way that it will bring him the maximum amount of glory. And we, as his children, will stand around that throne and say, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain from the foundations of the world to receive honor and power and glory forever and ever. Amen and amen. He's in control. He's still on the throne. So, that still leaves us, though. What do we do with that? We see in Ephesians chapter 2 that we're saved by grace through faith. And that it's the gift of God, not of works, so that no man can boast. We see in Psalms 23 that God restores our soul and leads us in paths of righteousness for his namesake. We see in Psalm 31 that we take our refuge in God. Let, let me never be put to shame. In your righteous deliver, in righteousness deliver me. Incline your ear to me. Rescue me speedily. Be a rock or refuge for me, a strong fortress to save me. For you are my rock and my fortress. And for your name's sake, you lead and guide me. We understand that in Ezekiel it says, Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Now I will restore the fortunes of Jacob and have mercy on the whole house of Israel, and I will be jealous for my name. We see that. We see that in the plagues. Wednesday night, we were going through the book of Exodus. And I pointed out that the plagues are a great example of how God works in a sinful world. Um, there's a few people in this room that will think this is funny, and some people who won't. Um, when my daughters date, when a little boy comes to my house and says... Um, that they want to take one of my daughters. I've got four daughters. They're, they're beautiful. I love them, and I, I want to protect them. And so I kind of have a prepared speech, right, that I give all the boys. I kind of do it the same way. I, I, I say, I need to talk to you, son. And uh, I usually call them by the wrong name, and when they correct me, like if their name is John, I'll call them Jim, and they'll say, my name's John. I'll look at them and say, I don't care. Um, I want them to understand the footing that we're sitting on, and I will I'll say, I need to talk to you. And so we'll either go for a walk or I'll, I always try to have a firearm involved, but nonetheless, I'll, I'll, I'll get them in their thinking in their mind that I'm going to say, now, son, I want you to take care of my daughter. But I will throw them off a little bit and I'll say, um, let me ask you a question. Who hardened Pharaoh's heart? Did God harden Pharaoh's heart or did Pharaoh harden Pharaoh's heart? Now, this is going to throw the little boy way off because he was not expecting this question. And he already knows that my daughter's a preacher's kid, so this is kind of flipping him out a little bit because he doesn't want to give the wrong answer. So I'll, I'll just be quiet and let him answer. Usually he'll struggle around and, well, I don't know. What does the Bible say? Well, the Bible says that, all right, and I'm like, well, it says both. The Bible says both. In the book of Exodus, it says, and Pharaoh hardened his heart so that he would not let the children of Israel go. And then another place it'll say, and God hardened Pharaoh's heart. So who hardened Pharaoh's heart? Am I lying? <laughs> one of, one of the, uh, my daughter's son's uh, little, little boyfriends are right here. I probably shouldn't call him little. All right, so I will say, here's the deal. In the Old Testament, there's always a primary and a secondary cause for everything. And the primary cause is always God. If you were to ask Ezekiel, why does it rain? He might give you a, 
an answer like, well, the, the rain falls from the earth, it's gathered together in the clouds, and it's going to rain again. That's the secondary cause. The primary cause is always God. So I will I'll tell the little boy, here's the reality. If you hurt my daughter, the wrath of God will fall on your head. I am the secondary cause. <laughs> now, let's bring it home to the sermon now. Why did God do that? Why would God harden Pharaoh's heart and Pharaoh harden his heart? Because the children of Israel for 400 years had lived under the influences of these false gods. And so by taking them through those 10 plagues, God was able to teach his children, those gods are not God. They want to worship frogs? I'll give you some frogs. They want to worship the Nile? I'll turn it to blood. They want to worship Ra, the sun god? I can shut the sun off at will. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and I reign. So those children of Israel, when they left Egypt, they knew that Yahweh was God. And he used a broken, wicked man and his wicked, broken heart to orchestrate the circumstances so at the end of the day, God received the maximum amount of glory. And the children of Israel left there knowing that Yahweh was God. God can work through circumstances. So that leaves us where we sit today. Okay, I can't pretend that not everybody in this room isn't scrolling on your Facebook every day reading about COVID-19, coronavirus, the, the woohoo virus, whatever we want to call it. And last year it was Zika, and the year before that it was the swine flu, and the year before that, and the year before that, going all the way back, when I was in the 80s, man, they, I, I literally walked around thinking, I don't really have to say for this test because I'm going to die from nuclear fallout. I mean, even as a kid, when they said, okay, if the bomb goes off, we're all going to get under a desk and put our books on our head. I, I was looking at that book going, this book ain't going to cover me. It didn't even have to be something that big. There are people in this room that have had small disappointments. They didn't get the job that they were thinking they were going to get. Their car uh, won't run. Two big disappointments. I've been in the room as someone died and had a family member look at me and say, Why? Why did this happen? And have some well-meaning Christian go, well, honey, we're not supposed to ask why. I don't see that anywhere in the Bible. I think that God answers the question why. And Paul, in the book of 1 Corinthians, or 2 Corinthians chapter 4, very directly answers the question, and I want us to look at it. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, this is what Paul says. He starts out and says, but we have this treasure in jars of clay. Okay, so we got to know what the treasure is. So if you look one verse before that, Paul says, For what we proclaim, what we preach, what we teach, what we talk about is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ is Lord. With ourselves is your servants for Jesus' sake. One of my favorite verses. If you ever get a letter from me, I will always sign it. Your slave for Jesus' sake. Stole it from this verse. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness... So the same God that made everything, the God who stepped out into nothingness and said, let there be light, for that God has shown in our hearts to give the light 
of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. I, I want us to pause on that thought for just a second. Now, think of what Paul just said. Because this is one of the most beautiful descriptions of salvation I've ever heard. The light of the glory of God as seen reflected in the face of Jesus is in our hearts. Every, we've talked about, last week we talked a lot about how every person in the world knows that there's a God and wants a relationship with him. Everywhere in the world they build temples. And yet we know that our sin and all the things about us keep us from that God. And so salvation is, the gospel is, that even in our brokenness that God has made a way. And the way Paul describes it there is the light of the glory of God as seen, reflected in the face of Jesus is in us. But, he then goes on to say, we have this treasure in jars of clay. You have a King James that says, in earthen vessels. Now let me describe what that jar looked like. Uh, all of us here probably had, a, if you don't plant plants, you had a mama who did, and you've seen a terracotta pot, the kind of the orange-brown pots that, that break really easy when they're frozen in the winter when you go to get your plants because you forgot about them and the bottoms break out. Those pots. Um, my grandmother would only plant in those, and she would always paint the outside so that the water would get tra trapped in them. So I've got some now that are painted some really ugly colors that she, somebody gave her a gallon of paint and she just slopped it on there. Those terracotta pots. So that's the clay, terracotta, and what the, when wheat, wine, uh, olives, grapes, when good stuff was being shipped out, what they would do is they, would, they had these particular style of terracotta pots and they kind of... The bottoms of them went down narrow, and that way, in the bow of a ship, they could stack them, and they would all sit upright because the way they interlocked with each other. And those are terracotta pots. And so they would be all down the, the bow of the ship, and they would, that's how they delivered them. And then they would fill it with olives or, or wine or grapes or whatever they were filling it with. They would fill it with that, and then they would take the lid of it, and they would either use wax or pitch and seal it so that it wouldn't leak. In fact, we found some shipwrecks where those terracotta pots like that are still sealed and they've sat at the bottom of the Mediterranean for 2,000 years. Once they're sealed, they're sealed. And the only way you could get the good stuff out was you would, it came up to a neck and they'd take that neck and they would break it and then dump out whatever was in it. So the important thing about the pot is not the pot, it's what's in it, right? It's the same way today in that. In my house, there's, there's sometimes a debate. Uh, we are, in, at the Harrison Home, uh, connoisseurs, if you will, of peanut butter. We love us some peanut butter. In fact, uh, Ann goes to the grocery store and buys peanut butter in like mass quantity, those great big jars of it that are there like two of them that are sealed together. And almost invariably, I will open the cabinet and go, ooh, I'm gonna get some peanut butter. And I'll reach, and I'm, the first jar I pull out is already empty, and I don't know why my kids put empty stuff back in the cabinet, but I'll, huh, so I'll throw that away, and I'll be like, oh, there's another one. And I'll pull it out, and guess what's in it? Nothing. And so, so we, we debate on which is the best peanut butter. I, personally, I'm a Jif Creamy guy. J amen, do I hear some amens? Preach it, brother. Jif Creamy. Um, some people, my son, William, he likes the crunchy. There, there you go, we got a crunchy guy here. Uh, some, some in our house like the, uh, the, the see, the, the all-natural peanut butter to me tastes like I'm eating sawdust. I'm not a fan. 
Uh, and then if you sit it there for more than about 10 minutes, it's got the, all that grease on the top. And I understand that there's grease in the other, but I don't want to know about it. I don't want the oil to separate. I want to forget that that's in there. So we choose our peanut butter based on, nobody goes to the grocery store and say, says, this container, this jar is really nice. This is the kind of peanut butter I'm going to get. They choose it for what's inside, right? They don't, they don't go, you know, Jif has got a very attractive container, so I'm going to get Jif. No, it's for the good, goodness inside. We are the jar. We carry in us the surpassing power of God. The light of God as seen reflected in the face of Jesus is in us. The only way that you get to what's in the jar is if the jar is broken. It's in the breaking that the world sees we're different. Everybody in this world goes through troubles. Everybody goes through trials. But when a Christian goes through troubles and they're broken, what's inside a Christian looks different. It looks attractive. It looks like something I want, which is why, as I've read, I've read a lot in the last week about how does the church respond in the face of plague and in the face of calamity. And you know what the strange thing is? The church always explodes in growth in the face of something like that. Why? Because Christians don't respond to bad things by going, ah! Christians respond to it by going, Oh my God is so good. You've seen that on a micro level. I know you have. I've been in believers hospital rooms. I remember so well going several times to sit down with Steve Pearson. And as I sat at his bed and held his hand, not once did he not look at me with tears in his eyes and say, God has been so good to me. And I'm sitting there going, you're laying in a hospital bed dying. And yet the grace is just oozing out of him. I've been at the hospital room when people's sons died and seen the Jesus in them. And when the world sees that, they go, what is that? I've seen believers as they went home to be with Jesus. They took their final breath. And it seems to be a very strange thing, but I've seen it five or six times. Those believers' hands go in the air in their final breath. They're going home. This world isn't their home. This isn't what they fight for. That's what we fight for. And so when we're broken, it's in the hard times. It's in the crushing times. It's in the grinding times that the world can look at us and go, that's what I want. Paul goes on to say, we have this treasure in jars of clay. Why? Now listen closely. To show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body, in our body. We're always carrying in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus might also be manifested in our body. We walk around as believers carrying Jesus' death in us so that the world can see he's alive. 
the, we can argue apologetically until the cows come home that Jesus is alive. We can show people historical evidence. We can argue from logic that there's no reason why 12 men would be willing to die for a lie. There's no reason why they would have made, that doesn't make logical sense. We can argue from logic, but the world has got to see Jesus in us. And where it's going to look the hardest is in times of trial. Because anybody can say, praise the Lord, when everything's going good. When I go out and get in my car and it cranks right up and I go to work and my hair is exactly the way I like it and it's got plenty of bounce and I'm looking good, feeling good, then who can't say praise the Lord in that? But when people are in their hospital beds and they're singing hymns, that rocks the world's mind. And so God allows these things to come into our lives so that we can praise him. Paul goes on to say in verse 16, We do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond comparison. And when Paul says a light momentary affliction there, in about six chapters, he describes what that light momentary affliction is. It's starvation, being shipwrecked, being lost at sea, being beaten to the point that people think that you're dead. He's referring to that as a light momentary, momentary affliction. Woo, that's a sentence you can't say really fast. A light momentary affliction. And Paul is saying that this light momentary affliction is equipping us and preparing us for the eternal weight of glory. That everything that happens to you in this life is equipping you and preparing you somehow for eternity so that none of your pain is wasted. None of your hurt is wasted. That God is using it in your life to make you more than conquerors. You heard that expression? I went to Coosa Christian. I'm an 88 graduate. I always thought it was funny that, that uh, their, their mascot is a conqueror. Try to put that in a cheer. Go conquerors. Um, but... Uh, the book of Romans does say that we are more than conquerors. In Romans chapter 8, it says, For I consider that the suffering of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility. Paul is not denying that this world is falling apart. That there are going to be earthquakes and tornadoes and tsunamis. There's going to be bad things that happen. That this earth is subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free. What shall we say then to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he also not graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is it condemned? So here Paul is saying that everything that comes into your life comes from God. The good things and the bad things. God cares more about your holiness than he does your happiness. He lets things come into our life to change us and mold us. So Paul is saying here on a spiritual side that you're redeemed. You can't be unsaved. 
Who's the one who's going to bring a charge? God himself has redeemed us. And then he gets into the physical realm and says, For I am sure, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So here's what he's saying. Everything that comes at us is first coming through from God. Height, depth, all of that is being filtered by God's love. And that God who created all things, he knows how to give his sons good gifts. He knows what we need and what we want. And he knows that oftentimes what we think we need is not what we need and what we want is the worst thing we could have. But he gives us what is good so that we're more than conquerors. Now, I want us to think about that for a second because we in the church don't really know what that means. We talk, think that what that means is, and I, there's an expression I hear people say all the time that, well, God is never going to give you more than you can handle. First of all, that's nowhere in the Bible. In fact, the antithesis of that is in the Bible. What this text is saying is God's often going to give you more than you can handle. So that you cry out to him. If he gives you more than you can handle, then your strength is not in you, it's in him. He gives me more than I can handle all the time. So that I fall on my face and say, God, I need you. Ah! The other side of this is the idea of more than conquerors. We're not just saying grin and bear it. We're not just saying white knuckle your way through it. What we're saying here is, is that it's times like we're coming into right now that is when God speaks, when God moves. Okay, we've talked a lot that you're free. Here's where the rubber hits the road. We are not driven by fear. We are driven by love. And so practically what that means is, I'm not going to do stupid things. I'm not going to walk around Walmart licking the counters. But I'm also not going to stay in my house and put a piece of plastic over my head and spray Lysol on my face every 30 seconds. There are people around you, your neighbors, there are people right now who are scared to death. Love them. Run to the grocery store for them. Run to Walmart for them. Let's be Jesus, in this community, we are free. If we perish, who cares? We're going home. This is the time. These are the moments when Christianity actually makes sense. And the world is going, I'm going to lose everything. And we can say, I can lose nothing. And so we're free to, with arms open, love our community to reach out to the people around us, to be the church. We pray, I've heard people in this room, pray for revival, pray for New Testament sort of Christianity. Well, it's coming, brothers and sisters. It's our time for us to be the church. And we do it not so that we get glory, but that he gets the glory. Paul ends this idea. He says, you are sealed to the day of redemption. Why? Not so that everybody can go what an awesome person you are. He ends this text by saying, to the praise of his glory. 
We started it with, he does everything that he does so that he is glorified. And we're ending it with, he does everything that he does so that he can be honored and glorified. And so I'm calling on you, church, be the church. Be his hands and feet. Love the people around you. We are free. And he who the Son has set free is free indeed. Father God, Lord, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you that we don't live in fear, that we don't respond in fear, that we don't act out of fear. We thank you that you are still the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that you are the God that parted the Red Sea, that you are the God that led the children of Israel through the wilderness. God, we praise you and thank you that you are the God that made iron float. You are the God that fed your children with manna. You are the God that rose up and fought the enemies of Israel. You are the God who sent your son to live on this earth and die on a cross. And you are the same yesterday, today, and forever. And that your arm is not shortened, that you cannot heal. Your arm is not shortened, that you cannot save. And so, oh God, we pray that you would rise up and fight for your people. And God, we pray that we would have the guts and we would have the grace to fight for you. That we would be your hands and feet. That we would fall on our face and cry out for our neighbors in prayer. That we would be in your word to equip ourselves and prepare ourselves to give an answer in every request. And God, that we would see your word come alive in our hearts. God, I do pray for our community. I pray that you would help us to be practical in the way that we serve. And God, I pray that you would use Corona, that it would be your unwilling lackey, that it would be a way that this country turns to you and that you would be honored and you would be glorified by your people's response to a terrible thing. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.